Tonight we come to very near the conclusion of the gospel, the good news according to Luke chapter 23. There's only 24 chapters in Luke and so we're almost to the end. Let's share in God's good word together. Two others also who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified Jesus there with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And the people stood by watching, but the leaders scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Messiah of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged there kept deriding him and saying, Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed have been condemned justly, for we are getting what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He replied, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. We are almost to Easter. We have been taking this journey with the nobodies week after week from Ash Wednesday all the way to Easter. And now we enter Holy Week. If you have your sermon notes, I invite you to take them out as we get so near the resurrection of our Lord. But it does get darkest before the dawn. These are difficult and dark days in our Lord's life that you and I might have life and have it abundantly. And so we remember together, as a way of introduction, that with God, there are no nobodies. With God, there are no nobodies. Will you say that with me? With God, there are no nobodies. And we remember that anybody can be somebody in Jesus' name. Really, anybody. Anybody can be somebody in Jesus' name. And in the story we see tonight, it becomes crystal clear. Because the person that Jesus is going to save tonight uh, was worse than a nobody. Matter of fact, there is nothing good about this man that we can find in any of the scriptures. But with Jesus, anybody can be somebody in Jesus' name. Will you say that with me? Anybody can be somebody in Jesus' name. And And the reason this is so important is that God sees the person you can be. That's your first blank there. God sees the person you can be, not the person you have been. And so it doesn't matter what your past is. It really doesn't even matter what your present is. What we're looking at is Christ's call to the future. Christ's call in His kingdom that you are saved to the uttermost, blessed to be a blessing to the world, a changed person. God sees the person you can be, not the person you have been. And so this is Palm Sunday weekend where people um, laid down the palms in front of Jesus and recognized Him as King. In the same way that they would have done for David, they were looking for a savior, a leader, one that would overthrow Rome in the same way that David had crushed the Philistines. They wanted Jesus to bring back their kingdom. They had been taxed and taxed and taxed. Whenever a soldier would walk by and he said, hey boy, carry my pack, you had to carry his pack a whole mile. It didn't matter what you were doing, didn't matter what your agenda was. If the occupying forces of that region said you had to do something, then you had to do it. And they were happy to lie or steal or cheat you. And it didn't matter because if you bucked up against them, they'd just kill you or kick you to the curb. There was no way to live a full and healthy and wonderful life in their minds under Roman rule. 
And Jesus, finally, the Messiah, there had been no prophetic voice for more than 400 years. These were dark and painful days. They had been waiting for the Messiah. And here he was, Jesus, the Messiah of the world. And he comes in on his donkey. But then he starts talking about peace of all things, about his being a peaceable kingdom. And, and love and forgiveness and mercy and compassion. And by Wednesday, Judas had had enough. It was not going according to his plan. And so Judas goes to the religious leaders and sells out his friend. Now, I'd remind you that Judas was so close to Jesus that he was the treasurer of the disciples. And, and he walked with Jesus wherever Jesus would go. He was the one that kept the money. He was the treasurer. He was the one that helped things go right. When they were seated at the table, it was... Judas's hand that was so close that he could dip it in the sup with Jesus right next to him. This is who betrays him. And so they have the meal on Thursday and now we come to Friday after the betrayal. It is hard to imagine a more brutal way to die. The Romans had really gotten this down to what they would have considered an art. And although crucifixion was widespread in antiquity, there are a few detailed descriptions of it. We don't get in the Gospel of Luke or in any of the Gospels exactly how they crucified him. And, and quite frankly, friends, crucifixion was so common, it was so widespread, people were crucified in all sorts of ways. But yet it is in this crucifixion that we find our Lord with one, another cross right here beside him and another cross on the other side with two common criminals with nothing good about them that we know one of the early writers in antiquity known as Seneca he wrote this about crucifixions he writes I see crosses there and not just of one kind but made in many different ways some have their victims with head down to the ground some impale their private parts and others stretch out their arms when the soldiers stripped Jesus of his garments and cast lots to see who would take them, it is likely that Jesus would have been crucified naked, or perhaps only with a loincloth out of deference to the Jewish sensitivities. But what we do know, what we do know is that the first thing the crucified Jesus does as he hangs on the cross is to pray for those who have crucified him. For those who have just done this horrible thing to him, in Luke 23, 34, Jesus says on the cross, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. For they do not know what they are doing. Now, I would remind you that our word excruciating, for excruciating pain, comes from this root word of crucifixion. It was the worst thing the world has ever known. And if done to perfection, it could take up to three days for someone to die as they slowly yelled out in agony before the masses. They would put these crosses along the Roman roads as a warning to say, look, if you cross us, if you don't pay your taxes, if you don't do what we tell you to do, this could be you in the morning. Crucifixion was well known. It wasn't an anomaly. It was something that the people knew very, very well. And while crucifixion was widespread or common, that's your next blank there, it was in antiquity, it was practiced in many different forms. And so we're not exactly sure how Jesus would have been crucified, but certainly this would have been common practice. 
and as often as an act of humiliation to, to take them down to nobody's status one last time, they would strip those being crucified. Now, at this point, we come to something very, very difficult. And that is the practice of forgiveness. And for many of us, there can be moments in our lives, whether they be recent or in the past, that somehow, some way, we've just come to believe that we just can't really be forgiven of that, whatever that is for you. That we've caused people so much pain, uh, or we've done something without thinking. Maybe we've caused someone else's death. Maybe, whether we meant to or not, we, we brought much pain and destruction into other people's lives and families through drunk driving or drug abuse or you name it. And there's, there's all these things that we're happy to say, oh, Lord, forgive me for this, that, and the other. But then there's these other things over here that we may not have ever even told our spouse. Certainly not our children. And no way our parents. And these things hang with us and we wonder, yeah, pastor, but really, can God forgive me of that? That thing that I think about at night when I'm about to go to sleep. That thing that I haven't been able to shake for 20, 30 years. Well, friends, that's why this piece of Jesus' life is so important. That if Jesus on the cross can look out to those who are hurling insults at him and making fun of him and putting nails through the most sensitive parts of his body and his hands where you have the most nerve endings and a crown on his head and nails in his feet. If he can say, Father, forgive them, then he can forgive you. I mean, think about whatever it is that's been troubling you. It cannot be worse than putting nails into God himself. God is more than ready to forgive you tonight. He loves you. Chose this for you. He wasn't a victim. He chose this. And he says, Father, forgive them. Now, this is where it gets really tricky. What did he mean by them? Well, certainly he meant the soldiers. Sure. He, and did he mean the religious authorities that put him there? Yes. And did he mean the others, the bystanders that just watched him for entertainment? Yes, he meant them too. But important tonight is that he means us as well. Jesus can look right into this sanctuary tonight and forgive you. He knows your need. And he's already paid the price. So if Jesus can forgive those, folks, he can forgive you. Tonight. Right now. You don't have to carry that pain or guilt or shame not a moment longer. Because his love is enough. It's the most powerful thing in all the world. And so in big bold, if you're following along in your sermon notes, uh, or if you have something to write on, I hope that you'll fill this in. Jesus prayed for my forgiveness. Will you say that with me? Jesus prayed for my forgiveness. In, in so much pain and agony, he's asking his father to forgive you, to forgive me, to forgive us, to forgive the world. All the sin that placed him there, not just the soldiers, but all of it for all time. Jesus prayed for my forgiveness. Underline my, my forgiveness. Jesus prayed in his last moments for our forgiveness. It's mind-boggling. And because of that, we are forgiven. Jesus prayed for my forgiveness, and I am forgiven. It is done. I am forgiven. Will you say that with me? I am forgiven. You are 
In Jesus' name, you are forgiven. You are forgiven. Each and every person here. Will you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you that you have forgiven us. We thank you that you are enough and that your sacrifice on the cross freed not only Barabbas and gave him life, though he didn't deserve it. You freed us. And you've given us life. So in your mind or out loud, I invite you to bow your head and say these words. Lord, please forgive me. Pray that with me right now. Lord, please forgive me. Lord, hear our prayers and save us from our sins and from ourselves. Lord, thank you for forgiving us. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer with me, friends, the scriptures tell us that all that pain and all that sin and all that guilt is as far as the east is from the west. We need not pick it up ever again because Christ has paid the price and set us free. We remember that the people chose to free Barabbas and Jesus took his place. And if Jesus can do that for him, he's also done that for you. It's very important that we understand this piece of forgiveness. Now you may wonder why we as a church hang out on forgiveness so often. Because friends, forgiveness is power. Forgiveness is life. Forgiveness is what it takes to do really almost anything when it comes to relationship. Friends, you can't stay married if you can't forgive. Amen? You can't. I mean, you may have a sham of a marriage where you just kind of act like you like each other, but if you can't forgive, you can't be married. You can't have a long-lasting relationship with any other person on the planet if you can't forgive them because if you're not Jesus, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to cause pain in other people's lives. It's just the, path, the way the world is. If you can't forgive... You can't even hang out with your roommate for a year in your college dorm. You're going to have to forgive them. If you can't forgive, you can't even stay in the same cubicle as somebody else at work. You'll have to go from job to job if you can't forgive. If you can't forgive, you'll have to have lots of churches and lots of small groups and lots of neighborhood associations and lots of lots of things. If you can't forgive, if you can't forgive, your world gets very small. Very lonely, very isolated. Now, at this point, I would love to tell you a funny story about myself. You know, to lighten it up or, or whatever it is. But the truth is, friends, forgiveness is tough stuff. It is. It's just hard. And, and if you've been married as long as I have, 23 years, coming up on 24 years, you know, Chantel has to forgive a lot. And so the, the whole scripture about 70 times 7 comes to mind. I think I'm on 489. You know, and you, you just have to continue to forgive. And, and one of the beautiful things that can happen in marriage is, um, it sounds horrible to say, but it's a beautiful thing. You just give up. You, you give up trying to change the other person. You, you give up expecting them to change. You, you give up on your kids picking up their room. Or, or whatever it is that drives you crazy. 
the, the toilet paper is one way or the other. Whatever it is. You just, after 20-something years, you just give up. You're like, well, I guess that's the way they're going to be. And you know what? They are. And that's okay. But here's the question. Can you forgive that reality? And if you can, you're going to have a good long life. And if you can't, you're in deep weeds. We need Jesus to forgive. To get on to the next day. Even if you've already forgiven them on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, and Friday, and Saturday, and Sunday, and Monday again, and Tuesday again. And on and on. Forgiveness is life. It allows you to continue to live. I didn't come up with this, but I, I think it's really, really good. Um, I want to show it to you on the graphic. The first to apologize is what? The bravest. Think about how, how much it takes, how brave you have to be to apologize. The first to apologize is the bravest. The first to forgive is what? The strongest. And the first to forget is the happiest. Yes, the happiest, certainly. Now, as Luke does time and time again so beautifully, he does something that I just love. He tells you the story, and he makes it more dramatic and more dramatic and more dramatic. Until finally, what happens is he flips the story on you. So we come to the cross, and, and Luke starts on the outside. He starts with the people, and he, he writes this. And the people stood by, and what were the people doing? Just watching. Oh, hey, another crucifixion. wonder how he does. Let's take a look. It's gruesome. But it's, you know, you, you can almost see how people do that. It's kind of like when we watch the motorcycle jumpers. Half of you wants them to make it, half of them, well, you, know, you just want to know what would that look like. It's gruesome. It's morbid. But it's humanity. People did that. They looked at Jesus. They just watched. And then they started to say things like this. He saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Messiah of God. Well, that's right. Because if he's the Messiah, he's a savior. That's what they do. So why isn't he saving himself if he's the chosen one? People do that. I wonder about ourselves. Are, are we people who just watch Jesus? Just watch the pain of the world and wonder if God's going to do anything about it? We might be the people in this story. But then Luke takes it another measure up, doesn't he? He says the leaders, what did they do? They scoffed at him, right? And him as the Messiah. And then the soldiers, they mocked him. So there's the people on the outside, then there's the religious leaders, and they scoff him. They kind of thumb their nose at him. You know, oh, that Jesus, oh, he thought he was the Savior. He's just not. Kind of, you know, dismissing him. And then you get to the soldiers, and the soldiers use this king of the Jews language. Right? They look up and they see it says king of the Jews. And like, oh, are you king of the Jews? And they run and they get a little, you know, goblet. And they're like, oh, Jesus. They do this sort of play acting. Oh, if you're a king, would you like some wine, Mr. King? And they make fun of him. In his most humiliating moments, they strip him and they gamble for his clothes. King of the Jews. You see, it's getting worse and worse and worse from the people to the leaders to the soldiers, from watching to scoffing to mocking. And it's interesting, isn't it, that the soldiers use the same language that the devil used with him all the way back at the beginning of the story in Luke. I wonder what Jesus thought when he heard, if you are the Son of God. I wonder if he thought back to the devil, command this stone to become a loaf of bread, if you're the Son of God. 
Then the devil took him up to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down there from here. It's the same thing, and the devil was at work through the soldiers. If you're the Son of God, if you are the King, bring yourself down. And it gets worse and worse and worse for Jesus. And finally, the penultimate, a criminal. One of the guys hanging by him, three feet from him, starts to mock him. Can you imagine this? Someone who has done nothing but evil all of their life starts to taunt Jesus, God himself. And you might wonder yourself, well, how could you do that? Well, how does any bully do that? Because it, in, in his lack of power, trying to be somebody, he's trying to join in with the soldiers or the religious leaders or the others to, to kind of, well, who are you, Jesus? So one of the criminals who were hanged there kept deriding him. Another, the translation really should be blaspheming him. Blaspheming him. And saying, are you not the Messiah? Is Jesus the Messiah? Yes. He's got that right. It's the irony. He says, well, if you are, save yourself and us. But he doesn't mean it. And, and to me, this is the most tragic of all. This man is three feet from the only one on the planet who can save him. And he can't get himself out of the way. His salvation is close enough to touch if he could just get himself free. And Jesus is more than happy to free him, more than happy to save him, more happy to forgive him. But his character is so dark and twisted that he can't even ask for forgiveness. He can't even see Jesus for who he is. He just makes fun of him. And, and th this I share with you as a warning, friends. That somehow we think that we can live our lives however we want. And at the moment of death, we're just going to flip around and go, hey, Jesus. Well, at least for one of the criminals, that didn't happen. For him, he was so used to belittling others, to stealing from others, to hurting others. He didn't care. His character had no concept of grace, no concept of forgiveness, no concept of salvation. And so he doesn't even ask, even though he's right there. Three feet away from his salvation, from God himself. And he won't ask for it. He won't ask to be forgiven. And if I'm honest, there have been days that I needed forgiveness and I went about to ask. Have you been there? When you knew you really needed your spouse to forgive you, your child to forgive you, your parents to forgive you, your roommate, your close person to forgive you, and you, you know, you just, you just weren't there yet. I think that day comes to everybody. Unfortunately, on this day, it came between him and Jesus, the Savior of the world. Now, Luke uses the Greek word kakorgos, which basically means people who do evil. And these two people are only three feet from Jesus. But notice, they are worlds apart. While this one was hurling insults and mocking Jesus, the, the other criminal, somehow, someway, he gets it. He thinks, oh my gosh. I'm going to just tell the truth. I'm... I'm you know what, I'm dying anyway, might as well just fess up. So, so the other rebukes him. And he says, do you not fear God since you're under the same sense of condemnation? And we indeed have been condemned justly for we're getting what we deserve for our deeds. But this man, meaning Jesus, this man has done nothing wrong. Like, what are you doing? Have you lost your mind? 
And he tells the truth about Jesus. And friends, this is, this is absolutely true. The truth set him free. Changed everything for him. For all eternity, it changed him when he was willing to see the truth, to own the truth, to say, yes, I'm getting what I deserve, but this man was innocent. And then he makes a request. It's really a prayer, but he doesn't know it's a prayer. He, he, he's not religious. He's never taught Sunday school. He's never said the Apostles' Creed. Hadn't even been written yet. All he knows is, well, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he has king of the Jews over his head. So if you really are a king, if you are king of the Jews, would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? You know, friends, that's the only prayer we have to pray. It worked for him. We'll see here in just a moment. I wonder if you would pray that prayer with me tonight. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Would you say that with me? Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus, remember me. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. You see, all this man knew, he was very clear. You have these moments of clarity when you're about to die. And all he knew was that he was dying and Jesus might be his only hope. And he was right. He was right. And having hung on the cross for some time now, Jesus replies, and I would remind you that it takes a lot of effort to pull yourself up off the cross to have enough lung capacity to speak and Jesus chooses to speak back to this man. And he says this, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. And can you imagine? Imagine what the religious folks must have been thinking. This is a criminal, probably a murderer. It, I, mean, I mean, wow. Wow. Those stood by must have thought Jesus was delusional. Yet Jesus says, truly, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. In paradise. Now, for us, friends, we can read right over paradise. I mean, we, we, we've, many of us have read the Bible. We think about heaven and all those things. But in Jesus' day, paradise was a very clear thing in their mind. I remember when I was traveling to Nigeria to do some mission work, we flew over the Sahara Desert. Have any of y'all flown over the Sahara Desert? It takes forever. I mean, you just, you fly and you look and there's nothing. And you fly another hour and there's nothing. You fly another hour and there's nothing. It's about a three-hour time frame where there, you don't see anything but tiny little, you know, Bedouin fires. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's as big as sort of like from L.A. to New York. It is huge. These are desert-dwelling people. And so when they heard about paradise, they would know that, that it was a transliteration from paradiso, which was a transliteration of, of another word um, that they all knew that really meant a king's garden, a walled-off garden that would have water features, maybe a river through it, maybe waterfalls, and every plant with the most beautiful flowers that you could ever see, and every plant with the most sumptuous fruit and grapes and Nuts and oranges and um, all the things from all over the world. And they would bring in exotic animals to live in this paradise. When they talked about the Garden of Eden, they, they meant this paradise. And so only those who had a close relationship with the king would ever come into his garden. 
And so when they talked about paradise, this was this most beautiful thing. And you can imagine, if you were someone used to something like the Sahara Desert, your paradise always had water and gardens and all those sorts of things in it. And that's the way it was for them. Imagine the most beautiful dinner table with all your friends, with lots of singing and dancing and wine and, and you know, good food and a beautiful night. That was the paradise that Jesus was promising this man. The king's personal garden. It was a place of indescribable beauty reserved for the king and his friends. That's what Jesus promises us. And notice that it's inside the walls where it's safe, it's peaceful, you can relax. It's beyond beauty. It's a joyful banquet. It's a joyful banquet. But to get to this banquet, to get to this moment, Jesus had to fulfill the words of the prophet Isaiah. Hundreds of years before Isaiah had written, Therefore I'll reward him extravagantly, the best of everything, the highest honors Jesus will get in the new kingdom, because he looked death in the face and didn't flinch. Because he embraced the company of the lowest, even those who would be crucified beside him. And he took on his own shoulders the sin of the many of us of the world. And he took up the cause of all the black sheep and he spread out. Think big. Jesus came for the nobodies and made us somebodies. But friends, we have a choice to make. There are two Criminals on the crosses beside him. One, cold-hearted, would not ask for forgiveness and did not receive it. The other, told the truth, simply prayed this prayer. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I invite you to pray that prayer with me each night as we move into Easter celebrate what Christ has done for you and for me, for all the nobodies of the world.